So when I sit down to write, I never sit down with an agenda and say, I want to write a piece about this. I'm looking for sound. I just start searching for sound that just grabs me, you know, that, that I say, ooh, I like that. Even as a little kid, I was acutely aware of the tremendous value in ideas and the pride in ownership. And that's really at my core. And I've come to realize that as a creative person, ownership of ideas is everything. And a music creator's 401k is their intellectual property. Welcome to Straight Talk, a podcast about big ideas featuring candid discussions with some of the world's foremost thinkers and doers. I'm Hank Paulson, chairman of the Paulson Institute. And today I'm speaking with Maria Snyder. Maria is a five-time Grammy award-winning composer and jazz orchestra leader. Her orchestra has performed at festivals and concert halls worldwide. She's a recipient of the National Endowment of the Arts Jazz Master Award, the United States highest honor in jazz, and was recently elected into the prestigious American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She is also a strong voice for music advocacy and has testified before Congress on intellectual property rights and digital rights. Her latest album, Data Lords, was released in July 2020. Maria, welcome to the podcast. My wife, Wendy, and I are big fans of you and your music, so I'm really looking forward to today's discussion. But let's start at the beginning. You grew up in Minnesota. Was music a part of your home life growing up? Who were your earliest teachers? How did they shape your approach to music? How did all of this evolve? Well, first of all, I'm a Midwesterner like you. I was born in southwest Minnesota, prairie country, in 1960 in a very small rural town. And of course, it wasn't a hotbed of musical culture or anything. But in 1966, there was an event that really changed my life. And that is my mother had a birthday party for my father. She always threw these huge parties and one of the couples that came said, can we bring our mother who just moved in with us from Chicago? So it turned out that this woman, their, their mother, had been a stride pianist in Chicago and extraordinary and also a classical pianist. And she also was a great organist. She was one of the most versatile, amazing musicians you could imagine. You know, and back then, a woman in a, in a kind of Art Tatum style. And her second husband was a pianist who had played with Glenn Miller. And I would venture to say that Mrs. Butler was probably 20 times the pianist her husband was. But the sad thing is she was madly in love with this man. He and her son died within one month of cancer. And her only living family was this daughter in Wyndham. So this extraordinary, very eccentric, she was a redhead, just super vivacious. She wore moo-moos and you know she was just not Wyndham Minnesota at all she was wild crazy Chicago you know and she comes to Wyndham by really terrible circumstances and she shows up at this party and word got out that she was a musician and people brought instruments and she played and I heard her 
And it was like something was ignited in my DNA. My mom was actually a pretty good pianist and I heard her play and she'd play records. But that moment I said, I want to be her. And I started studying with her and she, she was extraordinary. She taught me theory from the beginning, music theory. She taught me Cole Porter alongside, you know, Bach. And to this day, my music is hard to categorize. And I think she set that stage. And I had great teachers my whole life, you know, ending with, you know, in New York, studying with jazz heroes like Bob Brookmeyer and Gil Evans. But it was her who really was the biggest influence on my life. So that was a huge influence, but uh, talk about your creative process. Where does your music come from and how long does it take to write a piece? I know there's probably a, a different time period for different pieces. Well, yeah, a long time. <laughs> and I'll tell you what, the, the hardest thing in writing is facing the blank page. It's just so daunting. It takes so much courage. A matter of fact, a couple of years back, I collaborated with David Bowie and we were working on something and I was so nervous about what we were doing together. And then he looked at me and he just started laughing. He said, Maria, the great thing about music is if the plane goes down, we all walk away. And it, that was such a revelation because as a musician and I think any creator artist will say it does feel like life and death when you write. And so when I sit down to write, I never sit down with an agenda and say, I want to write a piece about this. I'm looking for sound. I just start searching for sound that just grabs me, you know, that, that I say, oh, I like that. And what I love most is if that sound attaches itself to a memory, a story, or something where I can get out of my own head and start trying to make that music about this thing. And what I look for too is when I love something, I always know there's some kind of DNA, like a math, a design inside of it um, that unlocks it. Just like if I'm looking at this hemlock tree out here and there's a DNA that gives the, a continuity and a beauty to that tree that we recognize as the hemlock. And so I look for the logic in my first idea and then I work sometimes like a mathematician, sometimes like a sculptor, like an architect, like a storyteller, or like a dancer. And, and it's weird because in the end, you know, if the music really happens and it becomes extraordinary, I feel like I never did it. But if, it's, if I write a stinker, I always feel like I did it. So, and, it and it can take months to write a piece, you know, weeks or months, but it... And, rarely happens fast. I know in writing a book, what it's like looking at a blank page, but it's not nearly, I'm sure as difficult as what you do. But your story about David Bowie and the plane landing reminds me, I have a very good friend. And when we were talking about going through the financial crisis and what it was like, and it took courage. This guy looked at me and said, well, it's not like we're landing at Guadalcanal, right? <laughs> <laughs> it's a little bit like, you know, the plane lands and we all get off. So now, you know, you mentioned a hemlock. Now I'm going to ask you about birds. So I got to know you through Wendy, my wife, because you birded with her in Central Park. And we really loved that when we lived in New York. What is it about birds that appeals to you, Maria? They just grab my heart. You know, they... I. 
There's so many levels at which birds can captivate somebody and they captivate me. Just their sheer beauty, overall beauty, their feathers, the shapes, the colors, the design. And then for me, it's like all the mystical, instinctual things that they possess, like the mastery of nest making. They're like structural engineers. I have books on that where it's just like, oh my God, how do these birds do this? And they're architects. And then they had that instinct for migration, to know somehow right after birth where they're going. There's the flight patterns. Do they fly in a V? Do they fly like the murmurations of starlings? Then you got the mating dances. You know from Cornell, the Birds of Paradise project, those insane mating dances. And then there's the bowerbirds. Have you seen those installations, those art installations that the male makes? And it's not even a nest. It's just to make something beautiful for the female. There's the miracle of flight. There's all the bills, the bills that can suck nectar, the bills that can hold a fish in it, or the skimmers. I know you've seen the, the black skimmers that skim the you're one of my favorite birds yep or they hammer the tree with their you know it's just it's unbelievable the variety and it's 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 impossible to not just be taken by that i for me so what's your favorite bird song yeah it would be odd that i hear i'm a musician the last thing that i mention are their songs and i will tell you my favorite bird song is my favorite song like if i was you know, on a desert island, they always do these desert islands. What music would you take with you? If I could bring one song with me, it would be the hermit thrush. It is amazing that you say that because Wendy and I talk about this and her favorite bird song is a wood thrush, but mine is a hermit thrush or the loon. And, and I think the reason is as a young boy, my favorite time was up in the Canadian wilderness, up in the Quetico Provincial Park. And there's just something about that hermit thrush song. It's just so piercing and so clear, the clarion song, or then the loon in the evening, you know, going echoing across the lake. So to me, it's something, it, the reason I love it is that it, it's just really, really beautiful, but it evokes a memory of a time and a place. Yeah. It- Hermit thrushes, I, there weren't hermit thrushes where I was, you know, in the prairie and the loons were more northern Minnesota. I would hear those on vacation. But for me, it's something about the hermit thrush. It's like a flute and it's also, it's unpredictable. You know how it'll go low and then all of a sudden it's super high. Then it's in the middle. It's like it plays with you and then it makes you wait. And where's it going to go next? Oh, it's really high, you know, and and it also, like the loon, you know how the loon, it echoes off of a lake. Yeah. The hermit thrush, I always get the feeling, and I, I would love to study hermit thrush song because I always get the feeling it's throwing its, its song off of the leaves because it always sounds like it's in a cathedral, that you hear this echo of it. It's crazy. It's, it's such a beautiful bird. Well, I'm far from a musician, but the flute is one of my favorite instruments. Oh, okay. And that may be why. So now I'm going to go to the creative process. So how did you translate the world of birds into your beautiful Grammy-winning piece, Cerulean Skies? And for those that don't know it, the Cerulean is is a beautiful warbler. Oh, yeah, it's a spectacular warbler. 
Well, okay, so like you you said that you birded Central Park, and during migration, a lot of people don't know that Central Park becomes the 12th best birding spot in the entire United States. It's amazing. and It's my favorite because they're down low and easy to see. Oh, yeah. It, it's And it's the sheer concentration. It's like, you know, shooting fish in a, in a fishing tank, you know, to see birds there. One thing, what happens, so this is a flyway, and the birds are migrating, and they see concrete everywhere, and then there's this green oasis for them, and so they drop down, you get a fallout, so they're down madly feeding in a concentrated area. But anyway, so go on. It's yeah, it's incredible. Sometimes it's just like it's dripping. If you if you find a day where there's a termite hatch or yeah. something, and the birds come down and they're it's it's just insane. And so I was having to write this commission, and it was spring, which is just the worst time to have to work because I want to be in the park. So I was playing hooky and going to the park every day, and then I came back to the apartment. I'm like, oh, I have to write. And I sat down. I don't know if you can hear this. My piano's right here. And, and I sat down, and this sound came out. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I hear, I hear, I'm, I'm hearing birds in there. And, and I imagined hearing all these little birds just sparkling and singing from the trees. And the thing about this commission I was supposed to write, it was for a Mozart festival in Vienna. Without a note of Mozart, the entire festival was commissioning people. It was the great producer, uh, Peter Sellers, was putting this together. And he wanted everybody to do something that was felt politically important. Well, I'm not a political writer. I just, I look for sounds I like. But all of a sudden, I started thinking about these birds and how... They are citizens of the world. Their survival, and I know you know this, depends on countries collaborating and caring because North and South, if one spot where those birds need to land is taken out by an industry or something, it can destroy the entire population. And so I started thinking about how birds should inspire us not to have boundaries, inspire industry and countries, agriculture, there could be a consortium of agriculture, north and south, to protect these things. And so I wrote a whole piece that gives the feeling of the opening of a dawn course in the southern hemisphere, taking birds through their migration, navigating by the stars and the moon, and then landing in Central Park. And so that was my my ode to birds. And Cerulean, a Cerulean warbler is so spectacular, so I called it Cerulean Skies. It is a beautiful piece. Now, what are your other hobbies? What else do you do to relax? I'm not a very good relaxer. <laughs> Music is kind of all-encompassing, I will say. But I love the outdoors, and I love hiking. And thankfully, New York, you don't have to go very far outside of New York City. And it's just so beautiful. And we got this little place in the country, and I've really come to just love landscaping, especially planting native plants. And it's just, it's so insanely gratifying. You start planting some milkweed, some native things for the birds, and they respond so quickly. You know, the next year, suddenly you have nesting birds you never had before. You have monarchs show, you know, showing up. So I just love that. And one thing I'll say, too, is, you know, musicians tend to be all about music. It's just music, music, music. It's obsessive. 
It's all we do. We eat, breathe, and sleep it. But I really feel like, you know, if I don't have something in my life outside of music, I have nothing to say. It's like over farming a field. You know, you got to let the field go fallow. You got to have some other crops coming in and something before you can really, you know, have something to create again. So, yeah, I, I think in just about every profession, and I can't speak to music, but in every other profession I know of, that the best professionals are ones that maintain some balance in their life and some interest outside of their career. They have an avocation in addition to a vocation. Now, so Maria, I, I want to switch a little bit now. And, you know, you're a composer and a conductor, and there's a critical element of leadership involved. What are the Maria Snyder leadership principles? What kind of culture do you seek to instill in your musicians? How do you bring the best out of the musicians you work with? Well, musicians, unfortunately, we don't get educated in leadership. We don't get executive education courses, even though we should, because it's probably the most complex business on the planet. And I think I've approached leadership very intuitively. You know, I just started a band and there I was, you know, leading 18 people and running a business. But I think that it turns out because my music is essentially, it's hard to categorize, but it's jazz, it's orchestral jazz. And jazz has this element of improvisation. And as it turns out, I think that the things that make for great jazz are good qualities in an organization. So for instance, first, I have to come in with a really strong vision, a clear vision of something that I want. But I also want musicians that come in with a creative voice and you know that every musician is bringing in their own creativity to the music so that we're creating something that's unique every time and that belongs to all of us. But, you know, it's important that I create some sort of limitation and then they have freedom within that. And secondly, I think it's largely about the people I choose. I only pick musicians that are fantastic listeners. They have to have great listening skills. They have impeccable ears and they thrive on being open responding and communicating. They are like great conversationalists. They're not just talking at you, but they're inviting and they want to shift, you know, even on a dime as a whole group, you know, it's like the the murmuration starlings, you know, that somebody does something, everybody just goes with it and the whole thing moves. And, you know, there are a lot of great jazz musicians that have a different aesthetic where they come in kind of with their agenda and you know they can dazzle an audience but if you were to hear it night after night you would know it's predictable and I like working with people that are musically vulnerable and I think the next element there is I treat them with respect they respect one another they respect me so it's it's like who wouldn't want to work in an environment where we all respect each other we're all listening to one another We all want to creatively collaborate, and we all respect the same overall vision. So it's this collaborative atmosphere. And 
I'll tell you, in this time during COVID, I've been interviewing a lot of my guys, and I became very aware that these are the elements in my group. They were the things that I valued and they value. And I started thinking, because we've been watching the whole election and all our politicians, and I thought, okay, you know, what if we had politicians that had these values, that they were listeners, they were collaborators, they didn't come in with their own agenda. They were there to support and trust each other and that the, the common vision was something that served everybody. I'll tell you, every one of them, they'd make terrible jazz musicians, you know, and I think they could all learn a lot from a group like mine. I think you're right. And, you know, I've seen very similar things in business when I was at Goldman Sachs or now with the Paulson Institute. You know, I'm looking to hire people that are team players and really want to be part of a team that uh, is greater than the individual. And you can't do that unless you're willing to listen. And of course, and you don't get anything done in investment banking unless you understand the other side's point of view, which made a big difference. And, and I think you know, hiring people is one of the most important things any organization does. Because if you hire someone and don't spend enough time and even if they're outstanding, if, they, you know, if they're not going to fit into your culture, the organization will reject it, just like a, you know, an organ transplant that doesn't work. It'll just be rejected. It takes a lot of time to have to replace people and, and so on. So I think the hiring and that culture is terribly important. And um, it's really interesting to me that in most careers, the sorts of things you mentioned are critical to success if you're going to get something done. So I'd like to now turn to how you build something. So I look at you as someone who is an entrepreneurial pioneer, having built the business in a particularly tough industry to do so. And, you know, I admire people that are good managers and leaders, but I really admire people that create something. You know, and I'm talking about more than a beautiful piece of music, but creating a business and, you know, a job for a group of people. And so I know it took a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to do this, right? It's not easy to do it. Well, so as a little background, my dad was an engineer, and he had quite a lot of patents, but they were owned by Kimberly Clark. He worked for a division of Kimberly Clark. But even as a little kid, I was acutely aware of the tremendous value in ideas and the pride in ownership. And that's really at my core. And I've come to, to realize that as a creative person, that ownership of ideas is everything. And a music creator's 401k is their intellectual property. And so I started in the 90s making records. Actually, my first record, nobody wanted to record me. And so my first record I paid for, and then a record company bought it. And then I continued under that old model that everybody knows where you're with a record company. And everybody knows back then that the musicians, they made no profit. But the thing that they all benefited from is that that record company was taking on the financial risk. And they also benefited from the brand and the reputation of that record company. But I started seeing that my records were selling really well. You know, I was selling something around 25,000 of each record. And, you know, in a very niche market, it was jazz, big band, you know. And I, I started to want to bet on myself. I didn't want 
my profits paying for somebody else's losing record, you know? So in 2001, there's this guy named Brian Camillo, and he conceived of a company called Artishare, and it was largely a response to illegal file sharing, Napster and everything. And he realized something, that the one thing nobody could file share was the creative process, and that an artist could build relationships with their fans by sharing all that goes into the making of the music as you're creating the music before you make the record and drawing fans close to the music and that this would be a hedge against file sharing. So together we looked at the numbers, you know, he didn't have any artists yet. He was just conceiving of this. When we started looking at my numbers, taking out all the middlemen, selling direct to fan, it was like eye popping. And I was like, oh my God. So I got all my ownership of my records back and everything. And he would get a small portion. Everything changed. Suddenly, he's getting the small portion. I'm getting the lion's share, but I'm paying him for his sophisticated software and expertise. And this was the other thing. We decided to take my records out of brick-and-mortar stores because those were anonymous sales. And the goal was building that direct fan base where I would know every fan. I'd own my work, and I would own all my data I would set my own prices, what a concept, and reap my own profits if I was successful. So we made my first record. It was called Concert in the Garden. It won a Grammy. It landed me on CNN. Everybody was like, oh, my God, she made a record, and it won a Grammy. It wasn't in record stores, and nobody even knew to say it was the first crowdfunded album because we were calling it fan funding. The word crowdfunded hadn't been invented. So I built this dedicated audience. I was making a profit, and I was like, okay, this is the moment the internet has created the golden age of the musician. I mean, I was flying high. It was amazing. But listen, that didn't last for long, did it? So what, what happened? <laughs> no, that didn't last. <laughs> so this was all pre-YouTube, and YouTube became very popular very quickly, you know, it's a place where anybody could upload music left and right with no questions asked. But then if I take it down, I have to go through a tedious process where now I become the punisher of you because you get, you know, a little slap that, you know, somebody took it down. And I have to sign a penalty of perjury statement that I swear that that property is mine. And it's beyond tedious. There are people that do literally thousands of them again and again and again and again for the same upload. So, you know, this YouTube, all-you-can-eat buffet of free music led to the destruction of the free market. And I'll tell you what, it's really, really hard for entrepreneurial people to compete. So can you take it a little bit further, you know, rather than telling us how many hours you spend trying to take stuff off of YouTube, which I get, but... So give us a little bit more about what you mean by the free market and how it's being destroyed. Okay, so when YouTube first came under fire for all this infringement from major record labels, YouTube secured this fingerprinting technology that would enable rights holders to proactively identify and then block those illegal uploads before they would happen. And it was a fantastic technology, except... YouTube only allowed the biggest record companies and names to use it. 
they, of course, didn't want everyone blocking the infringement because the infringement was creating all this music on their site, making them the place to go in the world for music. And it was garnering them all that data that they were able to then grab. So they decided to turn that fingerprinting software on its head to instead flag works to be monetized with ads. And of course, YouTube wanted every musician to access that. And, you know, the industry was feeling really helpless, exhausted of all the file sharing, you know, just decimated by it and exhausted of the manual takedown. So a lot of people went for this. And the reason I say it destroyed the free market is YouTube then with those ads, they paid a minuscule amount, 0. 0.000 something per stream per song, even though record budgets recording budgets, and a lot of people don't realize how much those budgets vary in cost. It's as much as a house or clothing, furniture, food. So for instance, my latest album that I made, Data Lords, it cost $250,000 out of pocket, not paying myself for years of work. You know, it was just a long process of making this record extremely expensive. And even if it's gotten lots of accolades, I have only a tiny niche audience, but YouTube's model of paying per stream is pricing me the same as the kid making a record for next to nothing in his bedroom. And that kid might have millions of followers. And whether your music is three minutes or 60 minutes, it's all priced the same. And now then all these companies that have to compete with YouTube, you got Spotify and they're doing the same. And here's another point is the payouts became so small that record companies quit paying for the records largely. So most jazz musicians that I know are paying for their own record. They're on a label just to have, I don't know, I don't even know why, the cachet, the, the brand or whatever, but they're paying for the record and they have a zero chance of making their money back. So 10% of the music on Spotify is generating 99% of the plays. That means 99% of the income. That means 90% of the music is splitting less than 1% of the financial pie. Hank, that's literally all classical music, all jazz music, blues, folk music, a ton of pop music. Some figure just came out in the UK that 82% of musicians are making less than $270 a year on Spotify. And I would venture, I don't know for a fact, but I would venture to say that the vast majority of those people are paying for their own records. So it's, it's crazy. I mean, they feel like they have to be there because they can't be visible if they're not there, but they're trapped in a market where they can't set their costs. Yeah, that's not a... Uh investing or working for a loss is, is not a, a business model. <laughs> Definitely. So you've become now an outspoken advocate for digital rights of musicians, lobbying against big tech platforms, which offer music for consumer data, as you said. What are you hoping to achieve? Well, you know, when musicians are putting up the investment capital with no chance of return, I don't think it's an overstatement to say that it's an existential threat to creative music. And I'm fighting for equal access to the powerful tools 
that could help protect us from that theft proactively so that we can compete and have alternative, fair, free markets. I'm not talking about a free, free market. So, um, or, or I guess a free market, it's a, it's a weird word that free, you know, because free yeah. isn't free. And, you know, my, my fight has gone even- What you're talking about is, is, I think what you're really talking about is fair market, you get better right Fair yeah. market, yes. So last question, Maria. You spend a lot of time at colleges and universities with aspiring young musicians. What are the biggest questions they have for you and how do you answer them? What advice do you give these kids? Well, firstly, every music program I, that I encounter in this country, they're all starting entrepreneurship programs because it's no longer enough to just simply make good music because music has been so devalued. But the problem I have, because they all want me to come and speak to the entrepreneurship program and come in and give all the answers. And the question I have that makes it really rough is, how can you be an entrepreneur when your property is ransacked on a daily basis? It's, you know, it, copyright infringement is no different than if people gave out the PIN number to your 401k and said, hey, cool, you know, we have the PIN number to Hank's 401k. What fun, you know, it's so convenient, you know. And then the other thing is, how can you possibly be an entrepreneur when you can't operate in the free market that everyone else does? So I can go on, but I'd be curious, like, what would you tell students? It's what I say to people all the time. Okay, when you go into a career, you better make sure you really love what you're doing, number one. And then number two, you better be darn, darn good at it because there's a lot of talent. So loving it isn't enough in today's world. You've got to be able to differentiate yourself. And so unless you love it and are very talented, you have to be prepared to not make much money. So if you can afford to not make much money, then you can do something you love and you're not extraordinarily talented, perhaps, or, you know, in music or in acting or anything else. There are other things you can do if you don't have the talent to be a top-notch performer, right? You can teach, you know, you can give music lessons, you can give acting lessons. But again, I think we owe it to give people a sense of realism. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what scares me is just that it's going to change the face of creative music because so many of the people before when I was talking about Spotify and the, you know, the 90% splitting the 1% of the financial pie, that would include probably every person that's ever won a Pulitzer Prize, everyone who's ever won a MacArthur, you know, sometimes, you know, the music that becomes the most popular and the most successful very often isn't the culture moving music. So, you know, David Bowie came to me not because my music was so popular, but it's because it was something highly unique, fringe, niche. So, you know, I want our society to be able to give the, the market, you know, not just supporting it, but I've always been a believer that if your music is good, if your music is good, like anything, out there that there should be an economic way to make it happen. So I would just say that to me, this has been a fascinating discussion and it's been inspiring. And I know you're gonna to continue to create great music and you're going to enjoy the birds and the wildlife. And again, 
Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. You have listened to Straight Talk with Hank Paulson, a podcast of the Paulson Institute. To find more episodes from leading thinkers and doers, please visit paulsoninstitute.org backslash straight talk or download on Apple, Google Play, Spotify, and Stitcher. And don't forget to rate and subscribe. Thank you for listening and see you next time.